Well, it might seem normal to us, but calling God our Father would have been shocking to Jesus' disciples. In the first of the three chapters that we looked at in the so-called Sermon on the Mount, which we looked at last week, there were three times that Jesus spoke of your Father in heaven. But in today's chapter, chapter 6, we get it 12 times. Our Father, your Father, your Father, your Father. And most famously, it's the bit where Jesus says, when you pray, pray our Father in heaven. I wonder if you ever stop and think about how amazing it is that we might say to the God who created the universe, Father. I think we take it for granted. But this revelation from Jesus to his disciples would have been truly earth-shattering. For throughout the Old Testament, the people of God have been warned against taking the name of the Lord in vain. They were very careful about how they addressed God, how they spoke to him and how they spoke of him, because they didn't accidentally want to do something that would take his name in vain. And so when it came to saying his name, they didn't use his name, Yahweh. Instead, they said Adonai, which means the Lord in English. Or if you were kind of next level, you, you wouldn't say the Lord, you'd actually say Hashem, which means the name. Just so that you were sort of two steps away from saying his actual name, risking that you might say it in vain. What they did was they, they created a sort of protective barrier around the Lord's name, just in case they might somehow do something to make it unholy. It's almost like they put PPE on God, <laughs> that, they, that they covered him in a face mask and a face shield and a gown and gloves. It was safe, but it was also difficult to get close to him. But in doing so, they were acting in a way that was consistent with how God acted towards them, as he was amongst them in his tabernacle and then in the temple. After all, the temple was really a giant quarantine centre for God. The Lord lived in the most holy place. And then there was physical distancing into the rest of the temple by the priests who were in their PPE. And the rest of the people gathered outside at a safe distance from the Lord, the Almighty. This is how the people thought of the Lord, because it's the way that, they revealed, that he revealed himself to them. And the most religious people of all, well, they were even more careful to make sure that they kept their distance from him for fear of contamination. And that's why they called him Hashem. And now Jesus gathers his disciples at a quiet place on a mountaintop to tell them about the kingdom of God. He's been talking to them as the special representatives of Israel, the, those who would be the people to cross over from the Old to the New Testament. In chapter 5, he told them about how they were the blessed ones. Blessed are you, blessed are you, blessed, or how fortunate you are, or however the translation goes. They were saying, you represent the faithful Israelites who longed for the Messiah. And now, now that the Messiah has come, and he now continues to teach them about life in the new kingdom of God. And now one of the most radical revelations is that those who follow Jesus as the Messiah can now call God our Father. Because it is such an intimate title. Father is such an intimate title. It shows that life in the kingdom of God is a family thing. 
as we come to the Father's house as his, as his children. In fact, we're all called sons, even whether you're a male or a female, which, is, which shows that every follower of Jesus had the special inheritance given to a son in the first century, whether you're a male or a female. You're a son, just technically there. But the thing is, it's all about the fact that the kingdom is a family. It's got such a different feel to it, doesn't it? We naturally do that sort of thing when we, we try and move from a cold, hard organisation to one that's a sort of a warm, soft family. So you might say that your sporting team, uh, it, it's more of a family. Or we might say that the, the fire brigade, well, we're kind of like a family. And, and that will happen especially when there's a, a moment of crisis, when we come together as a family. All of that is just naturally part of being in God's kingdom because he calls us sons and we call him father. And it appears a dozen times in this chapter. But how does that help us with everything else in this part of the Sermon on the Mount? Well, I reckon that when we start to experience with the disciples this shift from the Lord Almighty, the Lord of hosts and so on, when we shift from that to calling him Father, then we see life in the kingdom of God also changes. When we see that the Lord is our Father, it impacts the very way that we have life in his family. Because the Lord is Father, it impacts life in his family. And I think from chapter 6 we see this in four specific ways. Firstly, it's seen in our giving. Secondly, it's seen in our praying. Thirdly, it's seen in our fasting. And finally, it's seen in our worrying. And it all starts with the first one, giving. As Jesus says, chapter 6, verse 1, he says, Watch out. Don't do your good deeds publicly to be admired by others. For you will lose the reward from your Father in heaven. Jesus gives a very strong warning to his disciples. He, he basically tells them that when they do good deeds, they shouldn't do them publicly. In other words, he's saying, don't be a show-off. Don't be the kind of person who does a selfie for social media every time you do something in the community. But why is that? Why doesn't he want us to be a show-off? Well, it's so that we don't think that we're doing our good deeds to be admired by others. If we do our good deeds to impress other people, we're doing the good deeds for the wrong reasons. That's what Jesus is saying. And that's because you will lose the reward from your Father in heaven. That's what it says there in verse 1. You'll lose the reward from your Father in heaven. If you do good to try and get people to admire you, you'll miss out on your Father's reward. And this all makes sense because when you see God as Father you then realise that we're on about his approval, not about the world's approval. We want to make our heavenly dad happy with us. We want to make him happy with us so that we might experience the reward of, of deeper relationship. See, that's what I think reward means here. That as people already adopted into his family, receiving every good thing that the family gets, we'll then have a deeper relationship with our father our Father in heaven. And we, we can expect this to be the case because really the only thing that really matters is relationships. That's the only thing that really matters. Everything else is just something that comes and goes and eventually will be destroyed. And we'll see more of that in the coming chapter. And here's more about how we shouldn't give. Verse 2, 
says, when you give to someone in need, don't do as the hypocrites do, blowing trumpets in the synagogues and streets to call attention to their acts of charity. I tell you the truth, they've received all the reward they will ever get. He's saying, don't make a big fuss of it. Don't make a big noise. Don't blow your own trumpet, literally. Because <laughs> if you do, your Father in heaven won't be impressed. And all you'll get is the fleeting praise of other humans. But here's the way that kingdom kids, which is all of us as children of the Father, this is the way that we should give, verses 3 and 4. But when you give to someone in need, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Give your gifts in private, and your Father who sees everything will reward you. It's a famous verse. It basically says, give gifts to the needy in private. In private. That's a great principle, isn't it? And it's one of the reasons I'm really pleased that I don't know how much you guys give in church. I, I know when it's all added up at the bottom and I get told a number. I, I want to treat everybody the same, whether you give lots or little or none at all. It's between you and God. Um, I, I think that's an important principle. And it's important to remember that the reason we should be private in our giving is so that we won't long for praise from humans. You see those sort of fundraisers. People stand up at the front and say, I'm going to give $10,000. And everyone goes, wow, you're awesome. Now, the reality is they, they have $10 million in the bank and it's like just loose change. I mean, all of that is, that's not what it's all on about. But I don't think it necessarily means that we should be completely silent about our giving any more than we should be completely silent with our praying. And that is something we're going to get in the next verse where it says that we don't pray at all in public. But clearly they did. So we'll get to that in a moment. But the thing I'm trying to draw out here is that if giving to the needy is so important, then we should be relaxed about talking about it more generally and encouraging others to do it. And as long as we protect our motives, it's not about making everyone think, gee, wow, he's a rich person or he gives lots of money to whatever. As long as we protect our motives, I think there's a place for us to, to share in the, in the partnership of giving, uh, maybe even discussing with others what a joy it is to give. But whatever we do, it's not about us trying to get praise from other people. Uh, it's hard to read this verse and get that meaning. <laughs> it's the opposite. It's about pleasing our dad in heaven. Well, that's giving. Secondly, praying. Verse 5. When you pray, don't be like the hypocrites who love to pray publicly on the street corners and in the synagogues where everyone can see them. I tell you the truth, that is all the reward they will ever get. In the same way that we should be praying to please our Heavenly Father, we should be, we should be praying to please our Heavenly Father, not to impress others. Pray to please our Heavenly Father, not others. Because if the, the reason that you pray in your growth group or in church or wherever is just to please others, then you've missed the point. It's a bit like those people who are more concerned with how many likes they get when they ask the question, will you marry me? If it's just about the social media, then I'd say their marriage is probably off to a shaky start. But instead, here is what we should do when we pray. Verse 6, but when you pray, go away by yourself, shut the door behind you and pray to your father in private. Then your father who sees everything will reward you. 
We talk to our Father in private. It's all about him. It's not about others. Go away alone and, and, and talk to him where others can't see or hear you. Because you want to be rewarded. We want to be rewarded by our Father in heaven, not by others. We don't want some sort of gold star for the best prayers. We want our Father in heaven to hear us pray. But it can't mean that we should never pray in public, ever. The disciples and the early church, they they still had public prayers in church. But the principle is it's not about who you're trying to impress. It's not about impressing others. It's all about impressing our Father, our Father in heaven. And that's why it matters what we pray as well. Verse 7. It says, when you pray, don't babble on and on as the Gentiles do, blah, 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 blah. They think their prayers are answered merely by repeating their words again and again and again and again. Dear God, dear God, dear God, dear God, 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 whatever it is that they were saying over and over again. It's not saying that we shouldn't use prayers that have been rewritten before and then reused. We use some great prayers together and it's not talking about that. It's saying that we shouldn't use the words over and over and over and over and over and over and over again to try and please God. And here's why. Verse 8, don't be like them. For your father knows exactly what you need even before you ask him. See, we shouldn't pray in a way that tries to manipulate God, that, that tries to do something to make him answer our prayers because as our father, he already knows what we need before we ask. He knows us. He loves us. And we don't need to try and somehow earn our right to be heard by praying in a special kind of way. Instead, Jesus gave his disciples a model prayer, which has become the most famous prayer of all, the Lord's Prayer. We've already prayed it tonight, haven't we? (laughs) We pray it every time we gather for church. And if you join us for morning prayer online, then we pray it then as well. We pray it this often because we and millions of other Christians are praying it so that we will remember how and what to pray. It's not a magic spell with magic powers. It's just a model prayer to help us pray like Jesus does. To pray like Jesus says. And it starts like this. Verse 9. Pray like this. Our Father in heaven, may your name be kept holy. You think, hang on a second, that's different to what we said. Didn't we say, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name? Well, we did. That is true. Remember, the New Testament is written in a language that's not English. It's written in a special kind of Greek, biblical Greek, common Greek. So the English translation from one Bible version to another will differ slightly, but the message is the same. What's it saying? It's saying, call God our Father in heaven. We've already talked about that. But then it says that we should say, may your name be kept holy or hallowed, as we have it in our one that we commonly pray. It's a prayer that asks that God would keep being holy, being set apart, being separate from us so that he might act apart from the sin of the world. He is to be special and set apart so that he might be God and we might be his people. 
It's a prayer that ultimately asks God to remain special. To remain special. And then the prayer speaks of the Father's kingdom in heaven. Verse 10 says, May your kingdom come soon. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Remember back in chapter 3 and chapter 4, Jesus said, The kingdom of heaven is near. And now he's saying to his disciples, Pray the kingdom would come soon. It's a prayer that was actually answered as Jesus was crowned with thorns. And it's a prayer that will be fully experienced when Jesus comes again to judge the living and the dead. And as related to this prayer for the rule of the Father, is this prayer that his will would be seen on earth as he rules in heaven. See, what it's saying is, He's saying that we want to have him rule in earth as in heaven. Because whilst the Lord God rules the universe, and whilst he's always ruled the universe, it's a prayer that we would see his rule on earth as the same way that it is seen in heaven. It's a great thing to pray, isn't it? But having started there, we now move to our physical needs. We next, we pray for our physical needs. You see that it starts with glorifying God's name, then to us, verse 11. Give us today our daily bread, or give us today the, the food we need. I, it, it's a simple translation. It makes sense, doesn't it? It's basically asking for the food we need today. And then it moves from food to forgiveness, verse 12. And forgive us our sins as we have forgiven those who sin against us. Jesus teaches his disciples to say sorry to God. And to ask for forgiveness. You know, that's one of the reasons that when we come together for church, we have a prayer of confession, which is just a fancy way of saying sorry to God. It's a sorry prayer. We do that because we know that sin is our greatest problem. Forgiveness matters because sin is the greatest problem facing humanity. That's why when we come together, we've got to remember sin. We've got to remember the cost with which our sin was forgiven by the cross of Christ. We've got to realise that the greatest thing that has happened in the universe is that, that our sins are forgiven. So why wouldn't we talk about it every time we get together? And we're reminded when we pray the Lord's Prayer that that's exactly what we'll do. But as we ask for forgiveness, we pray that we might too be forgiving of others. Many times Jesus will tell us that as forgiven people, we need to forgive others. It'll come up time and time again. In fact, we'll get it in just a moment after the prayer. But before we get to that, Jesus says that in this prayer we should ask the Father to be like Jesus was in the wilderness, in the desert. This is verse 13, and don't let us yield to temptation, but rescue us from the evil one. It's a little bit different to what we say in church. You, you might even like to ask me a question about the difference between this translation and what we say in church. If you wanted a question, uh, that's one for you. But what it does is it essentially says, Help us to say no to temptations that will lead us away from God. And it recognises also that it is the evil one who is a part of that testing. See, this prayer was answered when the evil one was defeated at the cross of Christ. But as people who are awaiting the return of Christ, it still has relevance today. Because what we're doing is we're asking our Father to, to help us put on the whole armour of God and to have the protection that comes from the armour of God. Remember Ephesians chapter 6 talks about that. 
We're praying for that. And I think that's what we have in mind as, as we on this side of the cross are praying that Jesus would not let, that the Father would not let us yield into temptation but rescue us from the evil one. Now, some people would say that this prayer is a model prayer only and it's actually using it the wrong way to keep saying the exact words. Oh, you could say that if you like. But I, I still think there's a great benefit in us using it regularly, amongst other things, so that we will memorise it, so that we'll have it on our hearts, in our minds, so that we'll keep remembering to pray for these things. Because you know what? If we didn't have the Lord's Prayer, you know what I reckon we'd say? Our Father in heaven, give us today our daily bread. Bam, straight into it. We might just say, God, give us today our daily bread. But no, the Lord's Prayer says, Here's how you should pray. Don't forget this stuff. But before Jesus moves from the model prayer to another topic, he just comes back a little bit more and he says in verse 14 and 15, if you forgive those who sin against you, your heavenly father will forgive you. But if you refuse to forgive others, your father will not forgive your sins. It's a really important warning to people who are in the kingdom of heaven. It says that if if you're not going to forgive others, it's like, no, I won't forgive you, won't forgive you. Then you've got to say, well, the Lord's going to, not going to forgive you. And I take it that if you've been forgiven by a heavenly father, you'll naturally be led to forgive others. As hard as it is, you will, when someone comes to you and says, I am really sorry for hurting you, I, I'm sure that the, the Holy Spirit who lives in you will lead you to say, I forgive you. It's a spiritual thing. It, it's, a, it's an earth-shatteringly difficult thing to do if you don't have the Spirit of God. But if you can't, and you won't, and you won't forgive others at all, then, then if you won't forgive others, are you actually forgiven? Are you actually forgiven if you won't forgive others? Because if you can't forgive others, it's possible you've never really asked God the Father, to forgive you. And if that's the case, then what are you waiting for? Well, now we move from giving and praying to the third area. Giving, praying, and the next one is about fasting. It's about fasting. Verse 16. And when you fast, don't make it obvious as the hypocrites do, the two-faced people. For they try to look miserable and dishevelled. I'm so hungry. So that people will admire them for their fasting. I tell you the truth, Jesus says. That's the only reward that they'll ever get. Sympathy from others saying, oh, you must be so hungry. It's similar to what Jesus said about giving and about praying. He says, don't do these things to try and get human praise. Oh, hey, I give lots of money. You're awesome. Oh, I hear my prayers. Hallelujah. Oh, you're awesome. Oh, I'm so hungry for the Lord. I'm so hungry. I haven't eaten anything. Oh, you're awesome. Nah, that's not what you do. Don't do good things to try and get human praise. Instead, verse 17 and 18. Verse 17. Instead, verse 17 and 18 say, But when you fast, comb your hair and wash your face. Then no one will notice that you're fasting except your father who knows what you do in private and your father who sees everything will reward you. Jesus says to those people who fast that they should act and appear 
like they're not fasting. Now remember, Jesus is speaking to people who are part of Israel. They're in the overlap of the Old Testament and the New Testament. And I made a big point of that last week, and I'm going to keep saying it over and over again. They are a special bunch. And amongst them, there were the super-religious people of Israel, the, the, the super-religious Jews, who part of their religious acts would fast twice a week. They'd walk around, it's like, how are you going? Oh, I'm so hungry! It's like, oh, really? Why don't you eat something? Oh, it's one of those days I'm not eating because of God. It's like, oh, you're so good. What he's saying is, if you're fasting, don't do it in a way that it gets everyone to clap. But I don't think he's necessarily saying that we as New Testament Christians have to fast as well. Other than when I'm getting my cholesterol test, I, I, I don't normally fast. But some Christians do, and that's fine. We read that Paul and Barnabas prayed and fasted, both in Acts 13 and in Acts 14. But as far as I can tell, that's the only reference outside of the Gospels to fasting. Interesting, isn't it? It certainly seems that fasting wasn't a core part of what Christians did after Jesus' death. But the principle still applies to us today. Don't do religious-looking stuff to try and impress people. It's all about God, right? He's the only one in the stadium. He's the only one in the crowd. He's the only one that matters. And because, and the reason this is, is because we need to have a heavenly outlook on everything, including the things we own, our treasures, our possessions. Verses 19 and 20 say, Don't store up treasures here on earth, where moths eat them and rust destroys them, and where thieves break in and steal. Store your treasures in heaven, where moths and rust cannot destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. One of the hard things about being in the rural fire service is seeing when people's homes and possessions are damaged and destroyed. The start of last year, I was out on a fire ground where the fire had gone right through a person's home and through their shed. And I was there the day after and the ground was still hot. And my job was to put more water on the smouldering remains of this person's shed. I don't know whether or not it was his junk whether it was something that was really, really special and precious to them. But what it was there was just scattered and charred debris. See, what we have here from God through the Lord Jesus, what we have here in Jesus' words, is common sense for us. Don't invest in stuff. Invest in heaven. And there's another reason for that, verse 21, because wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will be also. If we set our hearts on heaven, then our desires will be heaven-shaped as well. And when our eyes are on heaven, then our whole body will be heaven-focused as well. Have a look at verses 22 and 23. Your eye is like a lamp that provides light for your body. When your eye is healthy... Your whole body is filled with light. But when your eye is unhealthy, your whole body is filled with darkness. And if the light you think you have is actually darkness, 
how deep that darkness is. See, when we see things in the light of the kingdom of heaven, we'll see the world very differently. We'll rejoice in things that see the kingdom of heaven grow. And we will mourn with things that do not keep holy the name of our Father. You ever had that experience where you, you've been watching a movie and the, and the main character starts falling in love with a person that they're not married to? And then over time, their marriage breaks down and they leave their wife and then they follow their heart to be joined together in an affair with the person that they really, really love. And the happy music is there and you're thinking, Oh, how lovely it is that they're all together. And then you stop and you realise, I'm cheering on adultery here. And something has happened that the, the ways of the world have, have popped up and have messed with our minds. What this verse is saying is that we need to keep healthy eyes that look to heaven and not earth. And we should be people in the context of that, that movie thinking, oh, it's really sad that this person has broken their promise to that marriage. And, and yes, it's hard. And yes, they've had a fight. And yes, someone else look, looks really pretty when you don't know them very well. But, but this is a really horrible story. That's what happens when we have healthy eyes that look to heaven, not to earth. And this, of course, includes how we, how we spend our money how we think about money verse 24 says no one can serve two masters for you'll hate one and love the other you'll be devoted to one and despise the other you cannot serve god and be enslaved to money oh i tell you what money promises so much it promises power it promises freedom But if you follow money, in the end, it will be a horrible tyrant. Money will be a monster, a monster that will consume you. And the more you get, the more you want, and you will never be satisfied. If you're devoted to God, you can't be devoted to money. You can't love both. And what's more, if you do love money, if you do love possessions, the Bible tells us that we'll be anxious. It's funny, isn't it? You think the more money you've got, the less anxious you'll be? Well, here's the final area out of these four where we see the difference it makes to have God as our Heavenly Father. Giving, praying, fasting, and now worrying Verse 25, that is why I tell you not to worry about everyday life, whether you have enough food and drink or enough clothes to wear. Isn't life more than food and your body more than clothing? And here comes the secret to stress-free living. He says, verse 26, look at the birds. They don't plant or harvest or store food in barns for your heavenly father feeds them and aren't you far more valuable to him than they are 
Can all your worries add a single moment to your life? Makes sense, doesn't it? The Lord loves the birds. He cares for the birds. But if he cares for the birds, he'll care for people more. He cares for people more because he loves us more. And so the bottom line is, don't worry. Don't worry because it doesn't change a thing. And then verse 28. And why worry about your clothing, Jesus says. Look at the lilies of the field and, and how they grow. They don't work or make their clothing or, or drive to the shops and go and buy the latest bit of clothing. And yet Solomon in all his glory was not dressed as beautiful as they are. And if God cares so wonderfully for wildflowers that are here today and thrown into the fire tomorrow, he'll certainly care for you. Why do you have so little faith? Clearly God cares for people more than plants, but look how awesome the plants look, how beautiful they are. And so he's saying, don't worry. It doesn't do a thing. Verse 31, so don't worry about these things, saying, what will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear? That's what Jesus told his disciples as he gathered them there on the hilltop. And what he said to them then applies also to us today. Don't worry about these things. They're not the things that believers in Jesus should be focused on. Verse 32. He says, these things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers. But your heavenly father already knows all your needs. <laughs> Why shouldn't we worry? Because that's what unbelievers do. You're not an unbeliever, are you? If you are, I'm so pleased you're here. Because today you can see what it means to be a believer in Jesus. Because you believe in Jesus as king and you come to God as your father and the promise is here you don't have to worry. And if you're already a follower of Jesus and you're worried out of your brain, then like, what are you doing? Don't do it. Why shouldn't we worry? It's because what unbelievers do. The difference is that we have God as our Father. If you're a believer, we have a Heavenly Father. And He knows our needs and loves us. And He loves us as a father loves a child. That makes all the difference. One of the great things about morning prayer on Zoom each morning is we have a bit of a chat before and after. We don't go for the full 30 minutes. It's more like about 20 minutes or so. But we chat a bit before and chat a bit afterwards. So pop in for a cuppa. Come on in, say hello. Uh, but one, one morning um, the other day, Graham Errington, who's often there with us, um, he, he made a, a, an interesting comment about Islam where he said that Islam doesn't believe that God is love. Interesting, isn't it? Only Christians think that. All Muslims can do is submit to God, hoping that God will be kind to them, or, or will, you know, whether he cares for them or not, but they're just told to submit. That's what Islam means. But that's the difference with being able to call God Father. See, our Father loves us, and he knows what we need. We're running around worrying about stuff. 
But Jesus says, just trust your father. And this is what that looks like. Verse 33. Seek the kingdom of God above all else. And live righteously. And he will give you everything you need. Pretty simple, hey? Set your heart on things above, on heaven. Think about pleasing your heavenly father. And stop worrying. Verse 34, our last verse. So don't worry. Don't worry about tomorrow. For tomorrow will bring its own worries. Today's trouble's enough for today. Sounds simple enough, doesn't it? <laughs> and that's because it is. It, it's harrowing to see the daily press conferences at 11am, especially as the numbers and restrictions grow and grow. And it's very easy to be worried, for some people more than others. If you happen to be in an industry like travel or hospitality, to name but a few, then you know how stressful it can be. But Jesus says to you and to us all, don't worry. Don't worry. The Bible says it right here. Don't worry. Don't worry about tomorrow because your Father will answer your prayers and he'll give you your daily bread. And above all, when your treasure is in heaven with your Father, you won't be worried about the day-to-day material things. And what's more, when you pray to your heavenly Father, he'll already know what you need before you ask. This time in our history can easily make us anxious. The mental health telephone call lines are getting hit harder than ever. But to the children of our Heavenly Father, Jesus says, don't worry. Jesus tells us, don't worry. And because God truly is our Father, we can fully trust his word, can't we? Let me pray.